You're looking festive. I'm going to Glenshine after this for the Christmas premiere for media. Oh. <laughs> I wasn't wearing this before. <laughs> Welcome to episode 147 of Left of Skeptic. My name is Brittany Lind. And I am Kayla Moria. And we are a paranormal podcast. Yes, we are. Kayla. Yes. I'm really excited to hear spooky jokes this week. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Let's do that before we even talk about ourselves. Hold on. We're going to go from the middle of the deck this time. What do we got here? What do you call a witch at the beach? No idea. A sandwich. <laughs> Duh. Oh my God. <laughs> I was I was expecting you to get that one. I feel like that's a joke we've all been telling since we were like, or like, what does a witch like to eat? A sandwich. See, I don't think I've ever once told that joke. Oh. I guess I'm just not funny. That's, that's incorrect. <laughs> that's incorrect. You are often funny. <laughs> Um, do, 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 what is a ghost's favorite fruit? I don't know. Booberries. Oh, of course. Oh, my God. <laughs> I am, like, I never get these, but <laughs> I also feel like I'm definitely not on my game because those are probably the easiest ones we've had so far. <laughs> oh, geez. Well, if we sound a little rushed today, that's because we are. We are. <laughs> We are both uh, running around like like uh, like going all into eighteen different directions, but it's mm-hmm. all good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm meeting Jay Gabler, and we're gonna head to Glenshin for the media premiere of the Christmas lights. Ooh, I like how you made that spooky. <laughs> um, and I just uh, my I had mom and uh-huh. Sarah and the twins over this weekend. Nice, and we went to Bentleyville. I saw the photos. On opening night. How was it? I have never been to Bentleyville on opening night, and I don't know that I'll do that again. Was it really busy? It was so freaking busy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I drove past it on opening night, and I was like, ah. My grandpa and grandma came as well, mm. and uh, I just felt bad because I was like, oh, normally this is so much, but it was a lot warmer than it has been in previous years. And honestly, yeah. So I'll take that. Yeah. I was in the parade on Friday and I was just like, thank goodness that this is not like it was last year. Because yeah. last year it was like negative a million and Okay, it was it was like not that cold. Negative it, a million. We'd all be dead. It felt really, really cold. <laughs> if you had to walk as far as I walked down Superior Street from one end of Duluth to the other with the wind whipping at you. Ugh. But it's okay because it wasn't like that this year. No, it was so nice. I wore this. Oh, perfect. I know. You can't see what she's wearing, but it's a gorgeous green and red like plaid, like a a, a, a clan tartan of, of Christmassy. Yes. Thank you. I, I didn't know how you would describe it, but that is, that's good. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a plaid clan tartan poncho. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, so with that, knowing that we've both got stuff to do. Let's crack on into it, man. All right. So I am going to tell you this week about the Travis Walton incident. Oh, okay. It sounds like it'd be a true crime story. Yeah, I mean, I feel like every time you put a name and incident. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a true crime story. <laughs> it sounds true crimey, but it, what I have found, is it's one of two things. Or it's true crime. Aliens. Or aliens. All right, I'm excited. It has been a hot minute. Since you've done aliens. Since I've done aliens. And I am kind of surprised I haven't covered this one yet because it is one of the better known ones. Oh. But... I think I know why I've pushed it off before, and we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. So a little background on Travis Walton. Walton was born on February 10th, 1953, to his mother, Mary Walton. In his, quote, early wild years, unquote, Walton has admitted that he experimented with marijuana. Gasp. Gasp. <laughs> uh, but also stimulants and LSD. On May 5th, 1971, at the age of 18, Travis Walton and a friend of his, Carl Rogers, pled guilty to breaking into the offices of Western Molding Company, stealing company checks, forging, and then cashing them. The pair was placed on probation for two years, after which they were allowed to plead not guilty and cleanse their records. Mm. And Mm. so the reason this is a little relevant is so that you know he had a wild time And because Rogers is relevant, because in 1975, when Walton was 22, he became a member of a seven-person logging crew led by Carl's older brother, Michael Rogers, who at the time was 28. So he and his brother both got a chance, a second chance, thanks to their older brother. Wait, I'm sorry. Or he and his friend got a second chance, thanks to their older brother. Rogers' older brother, Michael Rogers. Was he Roger Rogers? No. No. Like Carl Rogers' older brother. Oh, okay. Because I had said his name was Carl Rogers before. Uh, I I recognize now that that was a weird way for me to write that. Sorry. I was like, wait. That would be mean of the parents. That would be very mean of the parents. Oh, you know, Roger Rogers. (laughs) Roger, Roger. That was a Star Wars reference for you there. He's just, they're just really big fan of like CB radios. So the year prior, Michael Rogers had won a bid for a federal contract to thin out small trees from an area known as Turkey Springs in the Apache Sitgreaves National Forest. And the Turkey Springs job called for a thinning of 1,277 acres by August of 1975. Rogers requested and was granted an extension until November 10th. On October 16th, a forestry service inspector visited the site and said, uh... This job is not going to be done by your deadline. Because it just wasn't doing it? Well, no, it's just, it's a large job. And I think that he underbid not just in pay, but probably in his timeline. Mm. I think that's pretty common for some people to do. This was a big deal because failure to complete the job could lead to a $2,500 penalty and a disqualification from bidding on future Forestry Service contracts. So, big deal. These dudes were in a rush. They had shit to do. They got shit to do, yeah. On October 20th, so less than a month away from their deadline where they had to clear all these trees, Rogers wrote to his Forestry Service contracting officer, I cannot honestly say whether or not we will finish on time. However, we are working every day with such as manpower as I can hire. 
I will not stop work until the job is finished or until I'm asked to stop. I have considerable trouble keeping with a full crew on the job. The area is very thick and the guys have poor morale because of this. We will keep working and trying hard. That same night that Rogers wrote to the Forestry Service, the NBC network aired a primetime special, The UFO Incident. So this was the made-for-TV movie starring James Earl Jones, which recounted the Betty and Barney Hill incident, which we've already covered. Oh, yes, yes. On November 5th, 1975, Michael Rogers, who, again, Travis Walton's boss, reported Walton missing to the Navajo County Sheriff. Six members of the logging crew claimed they were driving down a forest road when they saw a lighted object above the ground near the roadway. They reported that Walton got out of the truck and ran towards the object, which shone a light on him. I'm sorry, why? Oh, you'll see. Oh, you'll see. Was he high? No, it doesn't make sense until you... Like until you get down there, but yeah, it's it's that was my thought. I was like, that's fucking stupid, right? That's so <laughs> dumb. Walton said at a panel discussion with uh, two of his former crew members, like much later on, I was awestruck and entranced by the beauty of the thing. I thought it would take off, but it didn't, and I didn't appreciate the danger I was in. Uh. So he's saying he was so awestruck that he had to run at it. That sounds like stupid logic. It's like, <laughs> it's the same kind of thing like, oh, this girl's so pretty. I'm going to invade her, her space. I just can't help it. She's just so pretty. I'm awestruck. A UFO is like a beautiful woman. Sometimes men just run at them. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Look, it was a weird analogy, okay? I just I just think it's stupid. Two of his crewmates later recounted how Travis was knocked to the ground by the bright bluish green beam of light, just like when you come across a beautiful woman. <laughs> they told officers that they were too afraid, so they drove off in a panic. Rogers, who was the one driving, stopped the truck about a quarter of a mile away. And after seeing the spaceship leave, they went back. They got back about 15 minutes later to find both Walton and the UFO with the beam of light missing. Mm. At 7.45 p.m., a member of the logging crew called Officer Elsie Ellison. Ellison, Sheriff Marlon Gillespie, and Deputy Kenneth Coplin drove to Heber to meet with the loggers. Rogers and two crew members agreed to return to the Turkey Springs with the three officers, while three other crew members refused to return and instead drove home in Rogers' vehicle. They were like, yeah, don't fuck that. I'm not going back there. Yeah. No, thank you. Hard pass. The five men that did return searched Turkey Springs until shortly after midnight when Sheriff Gillespie paused the search until morning. Around 1.30 a.m., Navajo County Deputy Sheriff Kenneth Coplin and Rogers visited Walton's mother. According to Coplin, when he informed her of her son's disappearance, she said, well, that's the way these things happen. It's about time I got a reason to get rid of that guy. And Deputy Sheriff was like, uh, what? He was completely shocked about how she took the news and her general lack of surprise. Yeah, it's pretty cavalier as a mother who just lost her son to mystery. So Walton... His older brother, Dwayne, and his mother were described by the sheriff as longtime students of UFOs. Interesting. 
According to researcher Philip J. Kloss, shortly before his disappearance, Travis told his mother not to worry if he were ever abducted by aliens because he would return safe and sound. Because Travis Walton's mother lived in a ranch house without telephone service, Rogers drove her to town so she could call Travis's brother Dwayne and his sister, who they did not name. Copland followed, and around 3 a.m., Walton's mother called her daughter, waking her, and Deputy Copland was again shocked at how well Travis's family took the news. We knew it would happen someday. They were just like, yeah, uh, so Beam of Light took him. We'll figure it out. That makes sense. That makes sense. The following day, November 7th, a search party of nearly 50 people scoured the Turkey Springs area, but failed to find Travis or any sign of what happened to him. There was no evidence of a fight or an animal attack, any sort of altercation, nothing to indicate anything was amiss at all. Law enforcement were surprised when, after a few hours, Travis's mother told them, I don't think there's any use looking any further. He's not around here. I don't think he's on Earth. (laughs) Like, the exact opposite of how either of our mothers would react in this situation. Also, just because he was abducted doesn't mean he's safe. (laughs) You don't know what abducted him. They're like the people at the... Like, on top of the tower in Independence Day, where they're all just like, no, they're friendly, they're here, I hope they bring back Elvis. <laughs> like, jeez. <sighs> Sheriff Gillespie dismissed the volunteers. However, the following morning, November 8th, Rogers and Dwayne Walton complained in person about the discontinued search, and as a result, Gillespie assembled another search team, which now included a helicopter, to keep looking. And his mom is like, that's not going to go high enough to find him. (laughs) Regional papers covered the story on November 8th. And that day, a member of Phoenix-based UFO interest group recorded a 65-minute interview with Roger and Dwayne. At no point during the interview did either express any fear or concern for Travis. They were kind of having the mom approach. It'll be fine. Shit will buff out. They were described as feeling confident that they would see Travis again. I just, I'm so confused by their just immediate acceptance that whatever took him will not harm him. Yeah. I would not be that way. No. During the interview, Rogers discussed the logging contract. So in this hour-long interview, he managed to sneak in there. This contract we have is seriously behind schedule. In fact, Monday, the time is up. We haven't done any work on it since Wednesday because of this thing, and therefore it won't be done. I hope they take that into account. So he was talking about the forestry service, of course, because apparently forestry contracts include an act of God clause that excuses contractors who are delinquent on their deadline because of like like unforeseeable circumstances. Um, so I'm guessing that usually means flooding. Yeah. Snowstorms. Fires. fires. Uh, I don't know that an act of God normally includes uh, one of the crewmates being abducted by aliens. But that's just a guess, I guess. Is that up for interpretation? No. I mean, I, I mean, if I was the forestry service, I'd be like, okay, well, we wouldn't consider an act of God if they were abducted by other people. <laughs> 
we're just playing fair here if we're just being all willy-nilly about where this guy is and being (laughs) super chill. During the interview, Dwayne revealed that he, Travis, and their mother were UFO buffs who had previously discussed that if they ever saw a UFO, they would immediately get directly under the object because the opportunity to go aboard a UFO would be too great to pass up. No, you don't know what they're going to do to you. So this would explain why the heck Travis ran after the thing while everyone else was terrified. Dwayne repeatedly insisted that Travis was not even missing. He knows where he's at, and I know where he's at. Oh, my God. He knows where he's at. He knows. (laughs) It's cool. You know, (laughs) no big deal. We just have multiple stories of abductions where people are traumatized and horrified by what happened to them. But no, it's cool. Travis knows where he's at. These folks are giving me anxiety. Right? I've kind of felt like that like while writing this. I'm just like, oh, okay. On November 9th, law enforcement continued the search for Travis until late afternoon when Walton's mother, yet again, said to stop looking. And by November 10th, stories of Walton's disappearance were being published throughout the United States, the UK, and Canada. So it was becoming international news Mm -hmm. on november 11th the press reported that travis's mother felt any further searching for travis would be useless he's not even here guys (laughs) he's up there also on november 11th rogers and five other members of the logging crew were interrogated by the arizona department of public safety Uh, it was a polygraph examiner named c.e gilson and he was trying to determine if the men had murdered travis like Walton, and we're trying to create this elaborate story to cover it up. It would explain why they were so chill about the fact that he's just gone. I think this is the logical, like, human response to a story like this. would be like, okay, it's now been days. He didn't report the abduction himself. You guys are saying he's abducted. One of y'all killed him. I think that's the logical expectation. Well, my my logical or... My, like, train of thought was actually they knew they weren't going to finish this logging project. These kids are all about aliens. They're like, you know what? If you get abducted by aliens, that's an act of God. They can't They can't blame us for that. I will neither confirm nor deny if what you are saying fits in with what I will be talking about later. <laughs> all right. So Gilson pointed out that five out of the six men as part of the polygraph like investigation, were truthful, and the results for the sixth man were not untruthful. They were just inconclusive. Oh, he was the murderer. <laughs> On November 12th, shortly after midnight, Travis Walton placed a collect call to his sister's home from a payphone in Heber, Arizona. Travis is back. And where did he where did they start again? It was in the woods. Outside of that area. It was still in Arizona. Yeah, it was the uh, Turkey Springs Forest area. In Arizona. In Arizona, yeah. Okay. Travis reached uh, his sister's husband, Grant Neff, who then drove to pick up Dwayne and then proceeded to Heber to pick up Travis. During a later interview, Neff did say that he thought Travis sounded drunk. So, I don't know who out there remembers collect calls, but... It used to be that if you used a payphone and you didn't have money, you could make a collect call that would charge the person you're calling. So yeah. you'd dial zero, you'd get connected to an operator, you'd tell them who you'd want to talk to, and then you'd state your name. So like when the 
other person would pick up the phone. We had a baby. It's a boy. We had a baby. It's a boy. No, but it's. That was a that was a collect call commercial. Yes. <laughs> but you you typically say, like it'd be like a collect call from Kayla Moria. And then you'd hear the person's voice saying their name. Yeah. When Travis told the operator his name, she recognized it as the missing man from the news. So on top of him making this phone call, mm-hmm. like after she had connected them, uh, she then contacted the police and alerted Sheriff Gillespie, who dispatched a deputy to the family ranch house. Good. Deputy Glenn Flake arrived at 2 a.m., where he saw Dwayne Walton transferring fuel from one car to another after having forgotten to purchase gas before the stations closed. Because this was the 70s and you couldn't pay at the pump. If the gas station was closed, you were fucked. Flake did not reveal that they knew Travis was back. And Dwayne did not offer to the deputy that Travis was back. That's just so freaking shady. So, moving... Everything about this. This (laughs) is a true crime. So, seeking medical attention for Travis, Dwayne was like, I'm not going to take him to the hospital after his supposed alien abduction. I'm going to reach out to a UFO researcher I'd met days days ago. So, he reaches out to doctor, and every source I read used quotes around the word doctor. So, we're going to guess he did not have a PhD. <laughs> Dr. Lester Stewart, a hypnotherapist. Dwayne took Travis to meet with Stewart, but his first words were that Travis needed medical examination with lab tests, and he was not ready for hypnotic regression. If y'all don't remember the Betty and Barney Hill story, hypnotic regression is what they used to help Barney remember what happened with the abduction, because they blanked. They don't remember anything. So before the doctor the doctor or whatever can even say anything. He's like, we're not ready for hypnotic regression. We just need lab tests. But his brother took him there to get medical help, not psychological help. But here's the thing. But they're all idiots. No, it's not just that. It's not just that they're idiots. It's like the reason I bring that up specifically and we'll kind of get more there is things are getting pieced together when you consider that this is all only a few weeks after that documentary came out about the Betty and Barney Hill mm. thing, or that movie, not a documentary, but the movie starring James yeah. Earl Jones. Stewart noted that Travis seemed very confused and reminiscent of drug addicts that he had treated in the past. Stewart also noted that Travis had a small lesion on the inside crease of his right elbow. He said it looked like track marks, which marks that exist after intravenous drug use is what track marks are. Mm. So after meeting with Stewart, the Waltons returned to Dwayne's home where UFO researchers arranged a house call by two medical doctors who were also amateur UFO investigators. Of course, of course. Why not? When they arrived at 3 p.m., Dwayne forbade them to use their camera or tape recorder. Interesting. Nor would he allow them to ask Travis questions about his experience. Interesting. Okay. Okay. In the doctor's notes, they also noted the presence of the intravenous puncture mark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they estimated it that it looked only a couple of days old. Okay. That day, stories of Travis's return had begun to spread. 
and the press began calling Dwayne's home in an attempt to reach Travis. Dwayne finally informed the law enforcement of Travis's return. And then he called Sheriff Gillespie, who insisted on seeing Travis immediately. The sheriff drove four hours into Glendale and arrived at 11 p.m. Dwayne and Travis demanded that Sheriff Gillespie not record the interview. So there's no, they're pointing out that there's no recordings of any of these interactions after the first few days. Yeah, it kind of it sounds a little bit suspicious. After a local UFO group facilitated the connection, Dwayne and Travis moved into a suite at the Sheraton Inn in Scottsdale, Arizona. Costs were covered by the National Enquirer. And in exchange for exclusive access to Walton and his story. On November 14th, Travis skipped the polygraph interview with police. But that night, in the presence of Enquirer reporters, a doctor associated with a UFO group had a two-hour conversation with a hypnotized Travis about the incident. And the following day, November 15th, Travis was interviewed by Jack McCarthy, a freelance polygraph examiner, that this was arranged by the UFO group and the Enquirer. Now, so he skipped the police one, but did the freelance one. Now, are are these folks thinking that this is going to add some sort of, what's the word I'm thinking well, of? Well, I think with the, legitimacy poly- with, the poly- with the polygraph, they were hoping to add legitimacy, but here's the thing, it did not work in their advantage, because McCarthy, I mean, he may have been hired by the Inquirer, but he took his, his shit seriously. McCarthy concluded that Travis was engaged in a gross deception and had even been <laughs> intentionally holding his breath in an attempt to beat the machine. <laughs> These guys are dumb. <laughs> They're just so dumb. So, yeah. So here's here's the thing with polygraph. Uh, we've I think we've talked about it a couple of times. And if I recall correctly, it's used as an aid still occasionally but it is not a verified form of like compiling evidence, right? Yeah, it's inadmissible in court. Right. People people still use it, but it can be fooled. It's not 100%. And from what I've kind of read, because I looked into this a little bit as part of like doing this story, uh-huh. is that it can be a good indicator and it's kind of like fun to watch people do. Mm-hmm. But even if you can trick the machine, by this point, the people who are trained to use the polygraph machines, they can usually tell when you're using whatever tactics you need to do to trick the machine. Right. So a lot of times when they give their results, they'll be like, this was passed, but I can, like this person said, I can see you holding your breath to try to beat the machine. Yeah, and concentrate. Yeah, it's just, you are obviously trying to bring down all your vitals so that you're calm seeming. Because, yeah, the whole idea is that it reads your pulse and everything to determine when you're relying. Okay. On November 22nd, Travis appeared on Phoenix television station KOOL, where he was interviewed about the incident. Travis claimed that he lost consciousness when he was struck by the beam of light and that he awoke in a hospital-like room, being observed by three short, bald creatures. He said that he fought with them until a human wearing a helmet led him into another room, where he blacked out as three other humans put a clear plastic mask over his face. Walton says that he remembers nothing else until he found himself walking along the highway five days later with the flying saucer departing above him. Quote, They forced me down on the table, but I lost consciousness, and the next thing I remember is waking up on a highway. I don't know how much time had gone by, but later found out it was five days and six hours. I was badly injured and could feel the cold of the pavement, but my clothes were warm. 
I saw the disc shoot off into the sky and then saw the lights of Heber Overgard, which that's the city is Heber slash Overgard. Okay. That quote was from Travis Walton on the 40th anniversary of his abduction at the Skyfire Summit UFO conference in Overgard. Now, that's so interesting, though, because, I mean, they had been praising these aliens that they would not harm him. But the story from him changed. Yeah. Bet he wishes he wouldn't have ran towards that light with such (laughs) enthusiasm. Uh, In the days following Walton's UFO claims, the National Enquirer awarded Walton and his coworkers a $5,000 prize for best UFO case of the year. After they said to have passed polygraph tests administered by the Inquirer and the Aerial Phenomena Research Association, or APRO. So, (laughs) they got other polygraphs when they did not like the polygraph that McCarthy did. Yep, that's sure what it sounds like. So, skeptics include the story as an example of a UFO hoax promoted by media circuses. Mm-hmm. saying that they did it to make money. Mm-hmm. UFO researcher Philip J. Kloss, who agreed that Walton's story was a hoax, perpetuated for financial gain, identified many discrepancies in the accounts of Walton and his co-worker. After investigating the case, Klaus reported that the polygraph tests were poorly administered and that Walton used polygraph countermeasures such as holding his breath and that Klaus uncovered an earlier failed test administered by an examiner who concluded that Case involved gross deception. So class basically was like, yeah, no, I found that McCarthy polygraph, you dicks. Yeah, I, I know what you were doing. This, oh, my God. In 1978, Walton wrote the book The Walton Experience, describing his experience. In 1993, the book served as the inspiration for the film Fire in the Sky, and Travis Walton made a cameo in his own movie. I hope no one bought it. Everyone just rented it from the library. (laughs) Paramount Pictures decided that Walton's account was too fuzzy and too similar to other televised close encounters. Too similar. So they ordered screenwriter uh, Tracy Torme to write a flashier, more provocative abduction story. Oh, oh, provocative. Provocative. What does that even mean? Rule 34 of the internet. Um, Anyway... On March 12th, 1993, the opening day of Fire in the Sky, Walton and Rogers, the logging crew leader, Mm -hmm. appeared on the CNN program Larry King Live. Mm. Walton has occasionally appeared at UFO conventions or on television. He sponsors his own UFO conference. That's the Skyfire Summit one that I mentioned earlier. In 2008, Walton appeared on the Fox game show The Moment of Truth. In 2015... At the Skyfire Summit UFO Conference, his 40th anniversary one, people journeyed by bus to the location of the alleged abduction. Ben Hansen, a former host of the TV show called Fact or Faked, The Paranormal Files, he was on one of the buses. He's also the co-director of a documentary called Travis about Walton's experience. During the trip, Hansen recounted that the site surveys done the fact that there was a group of hunters in the area who years later told Walton they saw lights of the spacecraft and that he has been to the site seven times. So basically, 
because uh, I wrote that sentence weird. Let's make sure I'm clearing up what that okay. was. <laughs> Basically, he's saying that he's done multiple site surveys. He has been there several times and that he encountered a group of hunters who were out the night Travis got abducted. And they also reported that they saw lights of the spacecraft. Though in my sources, I could not find the name of this group of hunters. That I did not look into his television show of fact or faked. So I maybe he included that in there. I could be wrong. I just like, he's like, I've been there several times. It's like, yes, I've also been to my job <laughs> more days out of the year than not. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. He just went there. He just went there. Um, apparently this was big enough to need like four school buses to haul these people. I hope they got in for free. Two of the four school buses got bogged down in mug because this is an like unofficial road. The logging road that it used to be yeah. is no longer maintained because it's cleared out now. And there was like a big forest fire at some point, I think in like 2002. Like, so it, they got stuck, which means everybody had to walk a half a mile from where the buses got stuck over snow, mud, rocks, and everything to get to the site. According to Karen Warnick of the White Mountain Independent, there was nothing there to see, just an overgrown clearing. Yeah. But, it- <laughs> but Walton went there with everybody and showed everybody where everything happened, where the truck was parked, and where it was knocked to the ground. So that was a big deal. I wonder how many people were really excited, and then they get there and they're like, Okay, this this was $10? Well, so this is something that I'm saying with every bit of, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for here is. I'm definitely being genuine and not at all being sarcastic. Okay. When I say that if this doesn't convince you of the legitimacy, <laughs> I don't know what will. On January 19th of 2021, Walton appeared on episode 1597 of the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. If that doesn't make you believe it, I don't know what will. Well, that just legitimizes the <laughs> heck out of him. We are not Joe Rogan stands on this podcast. Uh, we are not even Mm-mm. anything, Mm-mm. anything with Mm-mm. him. Mm-mm. Away with you, Joe Rogan. Unless we're talking like way, way early Joe Rogan so that I can watch Fear Factor. That's pretty much it. I was never even into that. <laughs> On March 19th of 2021, Mike Rogers posted a statement on his Facebook announcing, I, Michael H. Rogers, being of sound and rational mind, do hereby give notice that I am no longer to be considered a witness to Travis C. Walton's supposed abduction on November 5th of 1975. And he later clarified. Yeah, so he just like clapped back. He's like, I don't. She's like, I'm done with this. I have uh, been following uh, uh. along with this. I'm done. Uh, uh. He later clarified that it was because Travis tried to keep a new remake of the movie that he was trying to do about his experience a secret from him and not include him. Also, bro, let it go. So he says, quote, he's always had his big secrets that he's kept from me. It angered me. I tried over the last two weeks to reason with him, but of no avail. I don't believe Travis is an honest person, and therefore I want nothing to do with him. Unquote. Stop trying to make fetch happen. <laughs> she is a fugly slut. On April 30th of 2021, Rogers placed a call to producer Ryan Gordon 
who was working on a new film about the Walton incident. And Gordon recorded the call without Roger's permission. Mm -hmm. That's legal Mm -hmm. by Arizona law. You can record a phone call without the other party knowing. They don't care. Well, it depends. Yeah, in Arizona. Yeah, that's why I said that's Arizona law. Two months later, on July 4th, Gordon publicly posted the audio from the call, which features Rogers explaining, we were talking in the woods one day. We were talking about creating a UFO hoax, okay? I don't know how the UFO got there, but I remember when I was driving up to the truck and he jumped out, it was all deliberate. It was all a staged thing, okay? He ran up there and there was something about the UFO not being real, although it looked real. So he basically said it was staged, but he he doesn't know how the UFO got there. He was like blocking his own words. He's like admitting to a hoax, but saying the UFO was real. But, but then it was real. Like it was just supposed to be a joke. But then it really showed up. Rogers and Walton later reconciled and Rogers issued a statement retracting his alleged confession. <laughs> All right. So some other things to consider. Mike Rogers and the Waltons were known for their interest in UFOs. One member of the logging crew recalled Mike Rogers and Travis Walton arguing about how UFOs can fly. And Rogers later (laughs) acknowledged that he had watched the first part of the Barney Hill alien abduction document, like documentary slash movie. And the Waltons acknowledged in prior discussions about wanting to be taken aboard a UFO. The Walton family long had a reputation for pranks and practical jokes. One neighboring family, the Gibsons, recalled being the target of multiple pranks. Is this why they weren't concerned? They're like, this isn't real. (laughs) And if it is real, good on him. Uh, Within four months of the incident, UFO author Raymond E. Fowler, uh, himself a believer in UFOs and abductions, proposed that some members of the logging crew have been the victim of a hoax perpetuated by others in the crew. So this... uh, so. Raymond Fowler is like, this is not the whole crew's fault. This is some crew's fault. And then the other people like are playing along or not playing along, but got tricked into it. So I think that was their way of saying, don't come at all seven of these people. It's not all of them. I wouldn't have assumed it was all of them. I would have assumed it was these dummies. Just the main guys. (laughs) As early as 1978, logging crew member Steve Pierce expressed suspicion that the incident was a hoax pierce noted that on the day of the incident rogers made the crew stay past dark whereas usually they ended work hours for the day at 4 p.m pierce recalled that walton did not work at all during the day of the incident instead he slept in the truck while claiming to be ill from carousing too much he also reported that mike rogers disappeared from the work site for two hours that day Authors, including Michael Shermer and Philip Glass, note that while the National Enquirer tabloid publicized the opinion of a private polygraph examiner, it omitted the original polygraph examiner. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, they further note that while law enforcement had conducted a polygraph examination of the logging crew during their missing persons investigation, the objective of that investigation was to determine whether or not the crew had killed Walton, not whether or not what they saw was real. Ah, and they're like, no, we 100% did not kill him. Exactly. And therefore did not lie. And science writer and skeptic Michael Shermer noted that, I think the polygraph is not a reliable determiner of the truth. 
I think that Travis Walton was not abducted by aliens. In both cases, the power of deception and self-deception is all we need to understand what really happened in 1975 and after. And then Robert Schaefer, a longtime writer for Skeptical Inquirer, who we've both referenced a few different times. Oh, yeah. Uh, He's also a founding member of the UFO subcommittee of the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Um, He argued that for decades, the Walton incidents is a hoax. He said, starting in 2021, Schaefer promoted the hypothesis that Rogers and the Waltons made use of a nearby fire lookout tower to achieve their hoax. Ah, that's how they did it. They just pointed the light from there. So while the crew typically traveled back to Heber via Black Canyon Road, Schaefer suggests that they return that night via Rim Road, which passed by the Gentry Tower, a 70-foot-tall Forest Service fire lookout tower equipped with a generator, a 200-square-foot living space for the lookout, and an outer metal catwalk, and a spotlight. Oh, my God. Okay. Schaefer suggests that Travis walked towards the tower, which was brightly lit above all the treetops, until an accomplice in the tower illuminated him with the spotlight, and that Schaefer proposed that when Rogers, who said he was too scared and drove off, yeah, they then shut off the light, and then everybody was gone, but they were up in the lookout tower. And then he did heroin. <laughs> we don't know that, but they just said they saw us. I don't know. That he could... was all confused and he sounded drunk and he had track marks. <laughs> um, the phone booth where Travis Walton placed the call for help to his sister uh, is now a local tourist attraction. No. Guys. It's it's right there in Heber Overgard, don't Arizona. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's rare to see a phone booth still standing, so I th- I think that might make it a tourist attraction on its own. You know, I would go see it because it's a phone booth, exactly. not because it's the one where he called his sister I want to take my nieces and my nephews and be like, this is a phone booth. We used to have these everywhere. I had three in my school. Um- <laughs> Wait, you guys had actual phone booths? We just had pay phones mounted to the wall. We had, well, they were booth-ish. They were like, mm. so that you could be closed off. But it wasn't like a full booth like the ones you'd see on street corners. Okay. It is not operational, but they've got a little green man in the booth that you can take a picture with. Nope. And a mural on the side of the building depicting someone being sucked up into a beam of a UFO. Why are we giving this man so much credit for this story? (laughs) It's not even good. So, I think it is important to mention my last closing thoughts of this. We have... A group of people that want to be abducted by aliens. Mm -hmm. We've got some people that want some money. After the Betty and Barney Hill incident, and then the subsequent, like, abduction stories that came out after that, Mm -hmm. the National Enquirer started saying that they would give money, like, rewards to people who could prove they were abducted by aliens. And then you add in the fact that they were repeatedly told that this story was too similar to other stories that have been published already. And then you track in the fact that... They're just lying fools? Well, no, then you track in the fact that they were, like, they were all super big into this, so they had done their own investigation. And then you add in the fact that Rogers... Knew he wasn't going to hit his deadline for this forestry service job and needed a distraction. Otherwise, he'd get fined a bunch of money. So, 
I know we don't normally pick stories that we're automatically not going to believe, but we are skeptical here. Left of skeptical. <laughs> and I thought that this, because I, when I realized when I was looking for alien stories, as I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, God. But still, if it's one of the best known. Oh, no, it's always, it's always if, good If it's to... one of the best known alien abduction stories, we should still point I, that out. You so, know, I had a lot of fun throwing so much shade at those folks. So, Brittany, on a scale of oh para to normal, para being five, normal being one, what are you going to give the Travis Walton incident? Negative 17. <laughs> it, it gets points taken away because there are people who actually believe it and they go on tours to look at a field. And get like have to walk a half mile in the snow. Yeah. I chose this story, as I said, because it had been a while since I'd covered anything with aliens. Mm -hmm. I did not realize that there were a number of documentaries on the incident, including a 2022 doc called Alien Abduction, Travis Walton, available on Max. I've not watched it yet. And when I do, I'll let you know if my rating changes. But right now I'm going straight Nernass. It's worse than Nernass, Kayla. It's worse. It's worse. Well, it's yeah, negative it's not, 17. It's not normal ass shit. No. It's so nor ass, no rating necessary, normal ass shit. This does require your negative 17 yes, rating. I will I give it, it that. I knew yep, it. I will. That's how bad this story is. It's negative 17. Our regular scale only goes up to five. <laughs> but negative 17 is what this is. <laughs> wow. I didn't realize I had so many big feels in me today. <laughs> What do you got for me this week? Uh, tonight, I'm going to tell you about the Old Faithful Inn. Is it near Old Faithful? It is. Nice. Yeah. Uh, in Yellowstone National Park, uh, after Old Faithful itself. That's what it's named after. So does after. it just like on an interval explode? No. Okay. Thank goodness. <laughs> Oi. That'd be too much. It'd be too much. Yeah, so you're going to cover all the Mineral Springs hotels. I'm going to cover all the geyser-based hotels. <laughs> all of them. All of them. <laughs> I don't know how many there are, but I just realized that this was a, was a theme that I could potentially jump on. <laughs> all right, so the land that the Old Faithful Inn sits on once housed the Upper Geyser Basin Hotel, which burnt down in 1894. After this, having been the only hotel in a Pretty popular at the time destination location of Yellowstone National Park. Park officials put pressure on the Yellowstone Park Association to replace it. All these folks were coming to Yellowstone National Park and they had no place to stay because the last hotel burnt down. And not everybody is a fan of camping. I don't That's like what I, yeah. camping. I would rather have, even if it's just like a small little inn with a bed. No, oh, 100%. I'm in. I'm fully yeah. bought in I'm to this. Way, I'm, I'm bought into this inn. I'm way less likely to be murdered in an inn. Well, I don't know. We'll find out later about the murder. <laughs> All right. So the Yellowstone Park Association, they held lease on the property and the park officials knew that creating a more substantial hotel in this location would be beneficial to all. So, in 1902, the president of the association obtained financing from the Northern Pacific Railroad to build this new inn. It was designed by a man named Robert Reamer, and it was built using local logs and stone. 
Always a benefit. I know. Yeah, when you are in a national park, there's lots of logs and stones. The original lodge, known as the Old House, was constructed in 1902. This consisted of a grand multi-storied lobby and other common areas. And it was built in what at least hauntedhouses.com said is called the National Park Service Rustic Style. And quote, built in the golden age of rustic resort architecture. So I'm not really sure if that's like an official style of architecture, but... So all I can think is like, I'm sure this is not what they were going for, but like the American in Two Harbors. I've never been there. It's it's very like, we're fancy. Like we got, but we're made out of logs. Everything looks like a very fancy log cabin and we've got giant fireplaces and like this fireplace is made of stones and like, yeah, just like. A super duper fancy cabin for people who don't actually like to be in a cabin. Yeah. So that's National Park Service Rustic is what hauntedhouses.com calls it. All right. I'm going to buy it. It was later added on to over the next few years with a dining room known as the Bear Pit Lounge, which hashtag fun fact per Reamer's request, like the designer was covered in carved inlaid wooden panels with humorous carvings of bears in the act of mischief. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> just mischievous bears. <laughs> like just like one bear like hiding behind a tree, watching the other bear I'm trying to think of what with his head stuck in a honey pot. I don't know yeah, like, I can yeah, think of. Just like <laughs> <laughs> mischievous bears. <laughs> The final construction of the original old house was completed in 1904 when it opened to the public with a total of 120 rooms. That's big for the time. Yeah. It also had electricity as well as steamed heat. Oh, wow. So very, very high tech for the time and for being out in the middle of a A national national forest. Yeah. Yeah. So according to the National Park Service website, evening meals were accompanied by a string quartet and dancing was customary six nights a week. This place was happen. Happen. Additional sections of the lodge were added in later years, such as the East Wing in 1919, which was extended to all three floors, and the West Wing in 1927, along with an additional dining room and an extension to the front of the building. In 1936, the original Bear Pit Lounge was converted into a coffee shop, and the new Bear Pit Lounge was moved into the dining room addition that had been added nearly a decade before. I didn't say this before, but I like that name, Bear Pit Lounge. I like that. Well, you're going to like what they did with it. Okay. Okay. So those wacky, mischievous bear carvings, (laughs) they were then etched into glass. Hell and yeah. added to the new Bear Pit Lounge. And I actually have a photo of one of the glass etchings. Please, please, let me see. Look at those bears. They've got a bear conductor conducting an all-bear band. The bear the bear band is like, okay, they're playing string instruments. I can accept that. I can I can let that happen in my head. But this bear playing the clarinet, no way. Say, no way he can is handle. going to town on this bear-sized clarinet. There is no way they could handle a reed instrument. There's oh, those mischievous, wacky bears. I don't think they can get their lips to maneuver right to get the embouchure. Maybe they use their tongue a lot. I don't know. Look, when you're a bear, you got, you got to work with what you got. <laughs> when you're a bear. 
when you're a bear that dreams of playing the clarinet. <laughs> Anyways, so all of these additions have been made. It's been officially named the Old Faithful Inn after one of Yellowstone's most famous attractions, which is not far from it. In fact, both of them are located in what's called the Old Faithful Historic District, which okay. was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1982. I think it basically consists of the geyser itself and the inn. And they're like, yeah, this is the old faithful historic district. <laughs> the district, like it's, it's a section all of a very city. old. <laughs> Especially the geyser. I was like, I was, I was waiting for that. I was like, yeah, dude, the geyser's super old. Uh, during the first part of the 1900s, the Old Faithful Inn remained one of the mainstays of the Yellowstone National Park, a high-traffic tourist destination. Until World War II, when the park as well as the inn were closed to the public. It reopened to visitors in 1946, and people were so excited. People flocked to the park and to the inn after that. And in 1948, they added interior fire sprinklers, yeah, which is good because the last hotel had burned down. Yep. But the sprinklers didn't help much when in 1959, the Hebgen Lake earthquake hit the inn, destroying multiple fireplaces and parts of the lobby and more consequential. The earthquake also shook in part the inn structure loose from its foundation. Oof. Yeah. Expansive. <laughs> yeah. Sounding like one of those jazz playing bears over there. <laughs> I did play the clarinet. <laughs> I'll be there right next to you, bear. <laughs> Eventually, some 30 years later, by 1985, the structure had been fixed, the fireplaces were repaired, and the foundation was fortified. Thank you. Good. I don't know why it took 30 years to do that. I wouldn't want to stay in a non-fortified foundation inn. I'm going to guess because they've got that U.S. like National Park Service money, a.k.a. way Nothing. too low a budget. <laughs> uh, let's see. Shortly after that, they also added fire sprinklers to the outside of the building on the roof, which was good because just a year later in 1988, the North Fork... The North Fork fire came awfully close to just taking the whole in out but they had these sprinklers on the roof and between those and the firefighters they were able to save the inn yay yay you're giving me like leslie nope vibes with all this like national, national park. park information <laughs> more recently in 2004 and you know what i don't want to hear anyone say that 2004 was nearly 20 years ago it was nearly 20 years That's ago. That's fucking nonsense. I was a junior in high school. It was nearly 20 years ago. That was just yesterday. So in 2004, the inn went through what I think was the last major renovation, which not only brought the building up to current codes, but also restored the lobby to a closer match to Roger Reamer's like original design. Okay. Because as the National Park's website says, quote, The Old Faithful Inn, named for the geyser, exemplifies the use of rustic architecture at a large scale to complement a natural landscape. The chrolite that formed Yellowstone's caldera during the... <laughs> 
That's I'm, less Leslie Nope. <laughs> I'm, I'm good. Leslie Nope would have known. Leslie would have Nope would have known those terms. <laughs> During the volcanic upheaval, provided the stone of the building's foundation, and the local log pole pines the log for its walls. Skilled craftsmen uh, embellished the windows and stairways with gnarled wood selected for its inherent beauty. As designed by architect Robert Reamer, the inn combines rugged materials and organic motifs in a way that expresses both frontier sensibility and elegance. Unquote. I think that the Haunted Houses website had a easier to understand it description while giving the same like mental picture with all the without all those flowery words that they threw in there uh-huh. you just go with that haunted houses description of like national park rustic chic or whatever that was <laughs> yeah yeah you're right <laughs> and it's also pretty haunted yeah the most famous ghost is said to be that of the headless bride Ooh, ooh, we're combining two different tropes here. Okay. Uh-huh. And her story actually begins in New York City in 1915, where a wealthy owner of a shipping company had a teenage daughter who was a bit of a rebel. And her parents wanted her to marry this well-to-do fellow, but she was like, no, no, I will not. I'm not going to marry for money. I'm going to marry for love. And Which, s- same girl. Instead, she said that she wanted to marry this other guy, a much older guy who worked for her family. Are we thinking like, is this like creepy vibes? I don't know. I wasn't able to get a vibe. I don't like, we don't like him though. Okay. Okay. It's always nice for me to let you know whether or not we like him. I appreciate, (laughs) I appreciate that heads up. And her dad was not happy about this. And he was assuming that this guy was just a gold digger, but try as he might to convince her to you know, choose the young fella over this other fella. She just really wanted to marry this one guy and she would not be swayed. So her dad said that as a wedding gift, he would provide them with a pretty substantial dowry. But in exchange for the money, his daughter would basically be cut off for life. So no more money, no more emotional support from the family, nothing. In fact, if they took the money, they would have to leave New York City Forever. That seems a little extreme. Like you don't you don't own New York City, Dad. You don't get to make that choice. Well, he was pretty wealthy. Maybe he owned like a large chunk of it. Yeah, but then just moved to one of the other suburbs <laughs> or boroughs. You'll never find me. I'm in the Bronx. <laughs> you never look here. <laughs> so the girl's dad thought for sure that the guy would decline. So I think that this was actually supposed to be a tactic. Because it was so extreme. He's like, there is no way that this man is going to break up with my daughter because it means that he wouldn't inherit the money. He wouldn't get a job in my family business. But alas, the couple went through with the wedding and decided to honeymoon in the uber popular Yellowstone National Park at the Old Faithful Inn in room 127. Okay. I said that with such attitude. I know, I was waiting for like you, with the way that you had, the look you had on your face, I was waiting for it to be like room 666, but no, 127 (laughs) has a much less evil connotation. (laughs) You just wait. (laughs) So uh, the story goes like this. It did not take long for this man to show his young bride that he was actually trash. 
On the way to Yellowstone, he pretty much spent all of the dowry money at taverns or gambled it away at poker. By a month in, they basically had nothing. Not a penny to their name. (sighs) Like, they didn't even actually have enough money to pay their hotel bill. Throw the whole man away. Trash. And they argued constantly. So it's not even a happy marriage. Like, isn't there supposed to be a honeymoon phase? You would think so. They're literally on their honeymoon. Like, like the honeymoon phase indicates everybody's supposed to be happy, but they're on their actual honeymoon, and they're like, yeah, no, actually, you suck. Yeah, so they argued so much that, like, the entire staff was aware of all the tea. Oh, okay. Yeah. The hot goss. The hot goss. As Steph would say. Eventually, the bride couldn't take it anymore. She called her dad asking for more money to leave this stupid situation, and he was like, no. Yeah. And she was stuck. He did, I mean, he did threaten her with that when they when this all happened. I'm, I'm not saying. saying that I like it. I think that if you're in a position to help somebody who got themselves either unintentionally or intentionally into a bad situation, I, I think, you know, you should. But, I mean, it's his money. I guess he could do what he wants with it, and he did warn her. He did. He did. Uh, and then one night, things came to a head. The argument was louder than normal. It was angrier than normal. And afterward, the husband stormed out of the hotel, never to be seen again. And for the next couple of days, the staff at the hotel figured they ought to give the young woman, you know, some breathing room. Like, Mm -hmm. it's pretty dramatic. Like, her brand new husband just left her. That's a bummer. But after a while, when no one saw her, they started to get worried. So they decided to go check on her. The room looked like a hurricane had torn through it. Bedding, clothing, everywhere had all been thrown about the room. But the bride was not there. Okay. Then one of the maids moseyed on into the bathroom, letting out a scream, heard round the inn. The young bride was in the bathtub, bloody, and missing her head. Oh my God, again with the beheadings in the bathtubs. With okay. you with the beheading in the I, bathtubs. I actually have a note here that says, I didn't mean to do another headless woman in the bathtub story. <laughs> Certainly not so soon. But I think as we said last week, it seems to happen more often than you think. <laughs> so yeah, she was dead. Oh, uh, poor lady. She was missing her head. And the staff looked all around, but they could not find it. Oh, no. That is. Oh, no. Until. Uh. Up in the crow's nest, which is the highest point of the hotel. It's like in the lobby on the very, very top. It's where the bands would play. Um, A horrible odor began wafting down. Oh, poor baby. Mystery solved. Yay. Oh. Now, over the years, people have claimed to see the apparition of a woman wearing a flowing white dress drifting across the crow's nest to look down at the lobby She looks sad. And when she does, the old, normally creaky floorboards make no sound. Like, the structural integrity of the crow's nest is not great after the um, earthquake. Yeah. Like, you're not allowed to go up there because it's unsafe. They fixed a lot of stuff. They didn't, they were like, we're not going to fix the crow's nest. Like, we're not going to have any quartets playing up there anymore. It doesn't matter. It's pretty. It'll hold up in, like, a rainstorm. We're fine. Yeah, exactly. Like, you can see it. Don't go up there. Knowing this story now, I'm even more like, hey, dad, you should have given her some fucking money. 
I can imagine that he thought that the husband would t- just take it all. Exactly. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that it's his fault, but my brain. I is know just like, it just really Ugh. bums me out. Yeah. Or if you don't see her like looking over the edge of the crow's nest, you will see her walking down the stairs from its perch with her head not resting on her shoulders, but rather under her arm. Although, according to some sources, there is an assistant manager in the 80s who claims that he made it the whole thing up. Uh, And no one seems to be able to agree whether or not the murder ever actually happened to inspire him or if he just plucked the whole idea out of thin air. Wait, there were so many details to this story, though, I assumed there was documentation of the murder. So some of my sources said the murder really did happen. Okay. And some of my sources say this assistant manager in the 80s totally made it up. Okay. So we got like a 50-50 split here. Basically. So I don't really know. Whether the headless bride is really there or not, she is not the only female that folks claim lurk around the inn. In room two, there is said to be a woman dressed in late 1800s outfit who is said to watch people sleep. That's why I use the word lurk. (laughs) Lurk. Lurk's a good word. One story goes that a husband and a wife were sleeping in this room when the wife woke up to see a woman in an old-fashioned clothing floating about a foot off the floor at the end of the bed. She screamed and gripped her husband's arm so tight with her nails that he was able to produce the nail marks as proof the next morning. Ooh, Clip your fingernails. There is also, very sadly, the spirit of a little boy in the hotel who appears to be lost. He will run up in tears to guests and staff appearing as solid as and real as any child, asking if they know where his parents are. Shortly, though, after, he will disappear into thin air. That's sad. I'm choosing to believe that it's a loop where he is lost and then constantly finds his ghost parents. Therefore, that's why he disappears. Because he's like, oh, there they are. Never mind. I found them. I found them. Bye. Bye. Not all of the spirits that lurk in the inn met their fate in the current building, though, like that of the ghost of L.R. Piper. And he was a tourist on holiday from Ohio during the time of the previous hotel, where he stepped out after dinner to have a cigar, accidentally falling into a hot spring on the property, perishing in scalding hot water. Ouch. It's very reminiscent of that scene in Casper when, like, the dad gets drunk and then, like, Steps off the cliff. Oh, yeah. You know, that that too. I was thinking of the scene in uh, Dante's Peak where these like, this couple is like, ooh, sexy time in a hot spring because there's these hot springs people can go swim in. Yeah. And then they get boiled alive. <gasps> no, thank you. It's a good movie. Okay. Pierce okay. Brosnan. Okay. Okay. Others will report the spirit of, uh, oh, I forgot to tell you what happened to Mr... L.R. Piper. Oh, yeah. Some folks believe that L.R. Piper's ghost is the man who has been seen trying to climb out of a steam hole. His ghostly, scalded hand and arm attempting to pull the rest of his body up. I think I would hate seeing that more than I would hate seeing the headless bride. I 100% agree. That just sounds like the thing of nightmares. Others will report the spirit of an older gentleman dressed in a merchant marine uniform who appears to be looking for someone. He's been seen looking into windows, peeking into rooms, 
and he's been known to visit both the honeymoon suite as well as the crow's nest, leading some folks to believe that he might be the husband of the headless bride. However, that feels really unlikely to me. I'd, I'd agree. Yeah. There is a lead porter that is said to have stayed at the hotel even after death. Dressed in a uniform from the early 1900s, he's been rumored to appear and offer help to guests who are having difficulties with their luggage on the second floor, as well as providing folks with tips on which trails are the best for exploring. Hey, nice. That's just that's just somebody who stuck around because they like their job. And lastly, word on the streets is that the West Wing is a great TV show. While under construction, <laughs> revealed an unmarked grave or graves. Oh, Leading to all sorts of spooky shenanigans, from doors opening and closing on their own to the presence of a man dressed as a frontiersman, who may or may not be the mischievous entity who enjoys messing with the fire extinguishers. Allegedly, something is said to have picked up a fire extinguisher, turned it around 90 in a 90 degree circle. That's only a fourth of a circle. I don't know. <laughs> a 90 degree turning circle. It, turning it around in a 90 degree circle. <laughs> okay, people who don't know math. Uh, before putting it back on the holder. This was apparently done right in front of the official inspector even. This was not a frontiersman. This is those rascally bears. The mischievous ones. Yeah. Oh, you know they're all about playing with those fire extinguishers. It, absolutely. They play with musical instruments, fire, fire extinguishers. <laughs> You name it. <laughs> and that is the story of the Old Faithful Inn in Yellowstone National Park. I like that one. That's a good haunting. I'm, I, I'm I a just, fan. I just like all the mischie- mischievous bears. <laughs> mischievous bears, mischievous ghosts. I like, I just like. Mischievous, like, hotel managers who make up shit. There's just so much mischief <laughs> happening <laughs> at the Old Faithful Inn. <laughs> I'm going to say, on a skeptic scale, it gets a three. Mm, mm -hmm, And that's because I think the hauntings sound very classic, but I am going to go middle of the road because of that 50-50 split from sources on whether Whether or not not the murder actually The murder was real. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm going to go at 2.5 even. I feel like even though it's the middle of a national park so it's mm-hmm. the middle of the woods somebody getting beheaded in a national park like hotel would definitely make the papers so there should be sources for it you'd think so unless they try to keep it quiet but i don't i don't know it's the government kayla it's a conspiracy <laughs> aliens are real honestly people are beheaded in bathtubs the the stories are interesting. They just don't seem like they don't have a lot of uh, a lot of meat to them. Yep, yep. I yeah. like it though. Yeah, I, well, I was a I, fan know, of that one. I love the mischievous bears. <laughs> <laughs> I love that the architect was like, "We need to put mischievous bears in here. This is this is what the bear pit lounge needs." <laughs> mischievous bears absolutely and then when they move the bear pit lounge they're like let's carve them out of glass because it's fancy now we're gonna it's like the three little pigs three little bears it's like wood and then glass and the next one's gonna be made of stone we're gonna carve some mischievous bears in stone okay 
Okay. I, you take up stone. I'm gonna working. send I'm gonna send them a strongly worded email and be like, so here's the deal. You've had wood, you've had glass. I think it's time for some stone bears. Let's get it. Make it truly permanent. Exactly. Yeah. Like Mount Rushmore. But, it, <laughs> but mischievous, but mischievous bears. bears. <laughs> it would be way less ugly to look at. Um, so we have no listener stories this week. Okay. But I would love to receive some listener stories if anybody has any to share. For realsies. So if you have a spooky encounter, a you know, a UFO experience, anything you'd like to tell us about, you can do so by emailing us directly, leftofskeptic at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, www.leftofskeptic.com, and click the Listener Stories tab at the top of the page. You can also get there just by clicking the link tree in our bio. You can choose to remain anonymous or include your name, whatever you are most comfortable with. We just ask that you please include your pronouns. You can also follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Left of Skeptic, and Facebook at Left of Skeptic Podcast. Well, we want to thank you all for joining us on this Spooky Wednesday. We love you and appreciate you. It's true, we do. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Happy Spooky Wednesday. Okay, bye. bye. The Left of Skeptic podcast is written and hosted by Kayla Moria and Brittany Lind. This week's episode is edited by me, Brittany Lind. The Left of Skeptic music is by Dave Melling and Emily Havoc, and our artwork is by Al LeBlanc. Okay, bye!